is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we talk to esteemed Jaguar author and publisher Philip Porter about his life with Jaguar and some of the significant cars he owns. Richard West gives us an insight into how Formula One nurtures new talent and find out how Tom Robinson got on with his first dyno session on his brand new race engine. JECpodcast.com But first, hello, hope you're well. Welcome along to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And I thought I'd get things started this week by reminding you how you could win a Jaguar XK via this very podcast. It's true. It's all through the JEC charity raffle draw, which has taken place for many years, raising huge amounts of money for all sorts of charities over that time. The raffle car on offer is a 2014 model Jaguar XK Coupe. It's the signature special edition and it's come from Denton Cars and it's a superb and immaculate 5 litre V8 finished in Italian racing red and has just 35,000 miles on the clock. And it could be yours dear podcast listener for just two quid that's all the raffle tickets cost not only that but peter james insurance have teamed up with the jaguar enthusiast club for the raffle to offer the lucky winner up to 500 pounds worth of insurance for their beautiful new prize and because of the lack of events this year we've made it really easy to buy them online just go to jc.org.uk click on the shop link and scroll your way down to the bottom and you'll see car raffles as a button there. Click that button, fill in the form, pay your £2 or your £20 if you're having a book of 10 and that XK Coupe 5 litre V8 could be yours for just the price of a little raffle ticket. The draw will be taking place at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace on the 16th of May next year, that's 2021. And all proceeds are going to the Haemophilia Society this year, the only UK-wide charity for those affected by genetic bleeding disorder. And uh, that charity, a community of individuals and families, healthcare professionals and supporters that support those in need. So a fantastic charity charity money of course much needed in the times we live in at the moment all charities are struggling with fundraising so anything that you can do to help would be greatly appreciated get your tickets now for the jaguar enthusiast club raffle and you could be winning that jaguar xk coupe five liter Next on the JEC Podcast, we're paying tribute to Colin Thatcher, a very well-respected and long-standing member of the JEC Racing family who sadly passed away last month. Here to tell us more about Colin by way of tribute to him is friend and fellow competitor Ray Ingman. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Thank you very much. So tell us about Colin then, Ray. How did you meet him, first of all? Well, I first met Colin through a mutual friend, Brian Stevens, who's also very long-standing in Jaguar racing and um, I'd raced my S-Type Jag, 3.8 litre S-Type Jaguar for a number of years and it was time to move on with that and Brian introduced me to Colin that he wanted to start racing. That car was once known as the Blue Peter car because I appeared on Blue Peter in it teaching teaching um, Simon Groom at the time to uh, how to race uh, back in the days when you didn't need a license uh, well a road license but anyway a race license um, so 
So that car had a certain amount of fame uh, when I owned it, and then Colin bought it, and he he raced it quite successfully for a for a number of years, and then sold it on. A chap named Tony Pearson raced it a bit more, and then it was sold via West Riding Jaguar, and it was actually almost sadly broken up for spares um, to make a Mark Racing Mark II, and Colin. Last year, I helped broker the deal for Colin to buy back the rolling chassis, and he was building it up as a... He wasn't going to go racing again, but he was actually building up as a fast road car. And sadly, that's where it is at the moment, that it's uh, in a few bits. But uh, but there mm. we go. There's a certain there's a certain circular thing to him, uh, you know, to his life in that sense, that he started off with racing with that car and has recently bought it back. Anyway... Well, of course, in between times, he was very well known for racing his XJS, wasn't he? Tell us how That's that came right. about. Yeah. Uh, again, I, oddly enough, I seem to have quite a lot to do with him in that sense. I sold him um, an XJS, uh, well, actually back in the day, before JEC racing, um, as when I owned Classic Spares, we started Limited, which is a spares company, we started a thing called the XJS Challenge, with what was the Jaguar Car Club, but unfortunately they got to the point of not being very interested in racing Jaguars. Um, did an awful lot for Caterhams and what have you, despite their name. And when we formed JEC Racing, I was there at the original thing, uh, Castle Coombe, and uh, we launched the XJ, we relaunched the XJS Race Series, and therefore I had quite a lot to do with it. Colin was very interested in it. He bought um, a body shell and a roll cage from me and some other bits and pieces. Built that car up, um, a blue car. It was uh, reasonably successful. Um, it was then sold to a chap called Tony Dunk, another club member, and he raced in it. Then sold to a chap called David Weaver, who on the 25th anniversary of the XJS uh, when we were Brands Hatch, he was responsible for the biggest accident we've ever had in <laughs> club racing, which is a bit sad. And uh, I sort of, in a deal, got the remains of that back, and that car races to this day um, in the hands of Daniel Stewart. Um, when he sold that car on, he bought a development car, which was quite interesting, because to buy an XJS, which has got TWR in the logbook, was always a good thing. Uh, it was it was fitted with a Group A TWR roll cage, but it had never been raced under TWR. It was a development car that was a sort of a prototype for the, the DB7. It had a turbo and a supercharged six-cylinder engine in it. The car was then raced by, bought from them, raced by somebody else. Colin bought it, and he raced that um, for a period of time. And then... Uh, uh, sold it on to a chap called Gary Davis, who's heavily involved in the racing uh, oh. still. So whilst I seem to have talked a lot about other people other than Colin, I suppose I'm illustrating that he's been around racing cars for a while and the JEC, and he, in a funny sort of a way, has been responsible for a lot of other people racing with the JEC. Well, absolutely, and this is part of the uh, great thing about the JEC racing family because it is just that, it is a, is a family, and so his loss will be greatly felt by those who know him. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, not sadly, but if sadly, I suppose. Colin hasn't raced for a number of years, but he was still, he lived, he actually moved up near Snetterton, and he always at least came to our Snetterton races to spectate, and he always kept in touch, and uh, as I say, he... he 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 also had a number of road Jaguars over the years, including a couple of V-types, the last of which um, I was involved with again. And uh, it was a sort of a it was a it was a kind of a highly developed road car with a roll cage in and what have you, which was then sold on. Um, but uh, then he got himself a XF Sport brake as a road car. Uh, sold that fairly recently to fund buying the S-Type back. I understand that um, circumstances of his death have uh, spurred the family on to look to raise some money for one of the heart charities. Tell us more about that and how we can yeah. donate. I mean, Colin, Colin, if you ever met him, was a you wouldn't have dated him. He was he just made 69, uh, was 70 last week, uh, would have been. Um, and uh, you would have taken... He was a healthy looking chap so this is a lesson to all of us in a way and i was speaking to his daughter the other day and uh, he was he had an it, after the post-mortem he'd had an undiagnosed um health uh, cardiac condition um and passed away in his sleep which is a good way to go i imagine but didn't really have any particular uh, prior warning of it so those of us that race with international licenses and what have you, we do actually have stress-related ECG every couple of years, so hopefully mm. these things might be picked up. But in the general way of things, it uh, it could be a lesson to us all that maybe one, one ought to have the occasional medical. But in, in the light of that, um, the family uh, would uh, don't want cards and flowers and all that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, in these COVID-19 post conditions whatever it is there's not too many people can go to the funeral so they're actually they're actually putting the funeral on a webcast for his friends to see and also uh, they've asked for anybody who wants to make any form of donation in his memory to uh, to donate via a just giving page to uh, the Heart Foundation we will put the link to that page on the description part of the podcast so you can find that at jcpodcast.uk and in the description for this podcast that you are listening to now what's your greatest memory of colin when you knew him during the racing years uh in his uh in the white xtwr car he he was responsible he colin uh bless him always liked modifying things in, in a sense, he probably liked working on and fiddling with things more than even racing them. And he was always experimenting. And um, the the XJS started off, as they all have, with, a, with an inclined six-cylinder engine. And he had a bright idea about standing the engine upright, uh, for some reason. Um, and he, he designed a sump for it. And unfortunately, the sump didn't quite work as well as it might in surge conditions. And at our JEC race meeting at Lydon Hill, uh, it threw a rod through the side of the block. And 
the ensuing fire along the track was the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Without <laughs> most spectacular thing without any injury, shall we say, <laughs> I've ever seen. And unfortunately, I just can't seem to find. Back in the day, there were a couple of photographs. There was a photographer that caught this scene, but it was the most amazing picture of this XJS with with a trail of flame and bits and pieces <laughs> littered <laughs> underneath it. So, um, maybe not the kindest memory, but certainly he made a splash that day. Amazing. Well, we'll put a picture as well, actually, of uh, Colin in that S-Type race car that he brought from you back in 1989 uh, on the podcast page as well, which you've uh, kindly sent us. Uh, but, uh, Ray, thanks for coming on to the podcast and introducing us for those who didn't know uh, Colin Thatcher to uh, some great memories from his life that's uh, Colin Thatcher who unexpectedly passed away on Father's Day night just a few days shy of his 70th birthday Memories of Motorsport Richard Remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast Well on this week's Richard Remembers we're looking at young talent in motorsport and Richard I know that you've work with many of the legendary racing drivers up and down the pit lane throughout your career but looking back on those years were there some special young fresh faces that came through that you remember vividly standing out to you as their career progressed oh absolutely Wayne I think if you look back also um you know even further than when I started to strike the pit lane all those years ago uh Les Filières, which was the elf school uh, based in France Elf sponsored a effectively a training school for young drivers, and some of the great names of Grand Prix racing came through that. Alan Prost, Didier Peroni, guys like that who literally went through those early training programs under the watchful eyes of their instructors, who latterly became world champions and you know superstars in their own right. And in fact, when I when I came to Formula One, test drivers were. Uh, they weren't exactly the stars that they are today. I mean, I, I, I remember certainly at Williams when I joined, our van driver at the time was one Johnny Earl of Dumfries. And Johnny, um, you know, proved himself to be very capable as a test driver. And before we knew it, he was in a John Player Special Lotus uh, driving in Grand Prix and actually do, doing a really good job. But there really were a number of them that came through. David Coulthard in my era was a great example of that. He as a very young man, he was certainly showing talent, you know, under the auspices of Jackie Stewart's racing organization. And I have to give credit, although it's a name most people won't know, a guy by the name of Ian Cunningham, who worked at the Williams commercial department with me. Ian was very friendly with David Coulthard. And of course, Frank being as commercially minded as he always was, even if you took a test driver on, somebody had to pick up the bill somewhere. And, and Ian was very entrepreneurial. He went and spoke to um, Highland Spring Mineral Water and suggested that they supplied all of the mineral water to the Williams team along with a cash payment on the proviso that David Coulthard got a test drive and ultimately became our test driver. And those those young men are very difficult to actually spot. And in fact, if you look back in the history of motor racing, particularly Formula One, Ken Tyrrell, the late Ken Tyrrell, he was one of the great talent spotters and at places like Monte Carlo on the Formula 3 race on a Friday, whilst other people, you know, were sleeping off the previous night in those days, Ken would be on the pit wall early in the morning watching the Formula 3 race, picking out those young stars who, many, many of whom latterly became Grand Prix stars and sports car racing stars in their own right. It must be quite a shock 
to the system when a young driver arrives in Formula One, there's a lot to take in and there's actually a lot of opportunity for them and a lot of freedom and excitement. How do you, have you seen the, the change in how discipline has been required by new drivers as they've come through over the years? Oh, it's changed dramatically. And I think one of the real movers and shakers in the um, in that in that era, in that world, rather, is the Red Bull, I'll call it the Red Bull Academy, under Dr. Helmut Marko. Um, Marko himself, obviously, was a remarkable driver many moons ago, but he he had a very serious accident when a piece of debris hit, came through his visor and hit him in the eye, and I think it actually blinded him in one eye. And he became very, very close to Dieter Mateschitz, who's the man who owns the Red Bull brand. And... Together, they have developed this amazing string of drivers that have come through, drivers like four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel. And Jackie Stewart actually also should take enormous credit for this because when Jackie, you know, he had this um, incredible relationship with uh, Francois Sever, who sadly died at Watkins Glen in a terrible accident. And Jackie was responsible for almost training and grooming Sever to be his his replacement, because Jackie was intending to retire anyway. And I think a number of people over the years, guys like um, Helmut Marko, Jackie Stewart, uh, even Christian Horner when he ran a Formula 3000 team, these guys really nurtured the talent early on. And I think probably if you go back to the 70s and very early 80s, there was really, you know, people looked for fast racing drivers. As the decades have passed, people have looked for very fast racing drivers, but also incredibly rounded individuals who are capable of taking the strains and the pressures of the modern media world and the commitment to sponsors and also taking care of their own personal affairs and their fitness and their reputation so it's a much more complicated game now for a driver than it ever was certainly well we have of course got our very own young racing talent tom robinson from swallows independent jaguar continues with his racing preparation diary next and we left off last episode of the podcast with him testing his new engine out on the dyno so this episode let's find out how the rolling road session went and whether that engine is still in one piece you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast sharing the passion sharing the knowledge with the jaguar model experts so we just finished up with our day on the dyno down at pv engineering and uh, to be honest with you, I'm absolutely over the moon with the results we've had. So um, as, as I explained earlier, we've uh, run the engine in on the dyno and we kept it at a low load um, and running at a sort of low ends of the RPM just to bed everything in and make sure everything was all okay. And the good news was we had absolutely no issues. All of the engine was running as it should. We changed the oil. There was no signs of any kind of uh, bearing damage or anything like that in the oil, which was great. And then we then went on further to data log the vehicle and actually see exactly what, what we're getting from it. So um, we did actually need to do quite extensive um, changes to the, the mapping of the vehicle. Um, to, in all honesty, this is a really good sign. Um, obviously, we've made quite a lot of changes to the intake system. So this has shown in the difference in the map. So we've been able to increase a little bit more ignition timing and change the fueling to suit. Um, we're actually running a slightly different management system to what we did um, last season as well. So we have a lot more data 
so we have um, a lot more sensors on the engine so we can see exactly what's going on now the main notable difference from what it we had last year was the the intake temperatures were just extremely stable with the air to air cooler that we mentioned earlier we normally would quite regularly see sort of 50 to 60 degree intake temperatures on the dyno which I can assure you is very excessive and, and causing us to lose quite a substantial amount of power as explained. Now um, the dyno temperature in the room, the ambient air temperature was about 22 degrees and we were seeing around 27, 28 degree intake temperatures under load which is which is absolutely brilliant. It's only just above ambient air, ambient air temperature which is it is just nearly perfect to be honest. So it's definitely doing exactly what we want it to do. Um, now the, the, the power and torque was, was absolutely brilliant and the car was very consistent so um, we're really pleased with the results and now we just need to to actually give the vehicle some proper testing on track sometimes you can't mimic what you'll you'll get on circuit to what you get on the dyno it's not ideal but it's it's the only way to actually tune these vehicles and data log and test properly um, but to be honest with you you can't beat track time so um, and we're up at Castle Coombe which is our local circuit and we've just got all day to to bed the car in, test um, all of the new improvements that we've done to the car and also we'll be able to analyse a lot of the data and just make sure everything's all as it should ready for Fruxton. So um, next episode we'll probably talk about some of the setup for Fruxton and what we need to do and we'll let you know how we get on ready for the track day. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk Well now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast we're talking to a renowned motoring author a passionate Jaguar fan and the founder of publishers Porter Press International it is Philip Porter Philip welcome to the podcast Thank you very much indeed If I was to describe editing our podcast series as a three pipe problem you would know exactly what I meant wouldn't you Philip? (laughs) (laughs) I would, I would indeed. It's a, it's a reference to Sherlock Holmes, who was uh, want to refer to uh, cer- certain cases as that as a, quite a three-pipe problem. He would smoke through the night, thinking intensely about the the the, the case in hand. You were <laughs> quite um, high up in the world of Sherlock Holmes at one time, weren't you? And a previous chairman of the society, which is amazing. Well, yes, it's uh, it's been a, a great part of my life for many, many years. Uh, terrific fun, an antidote to cars. Uh, nice change, nice contrast. And I ended up uh, chairman on a couple of occasions um, and, and so on. It's, it's something very different, great fun, international, made lots of friends through it. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrific, great fun. Well, before we get on with Jaguars, I must ask you, favourite TV Sherlock Holmes ever, what do you think? Oh, no question whatsoever. Uh, my... Uh, dear friend became a dear friend called Douglas Wilmer in the 60s I'm ancient enough that uh, as a child um, I saw Douglas in the mid 60s um, and to to me and to a number of others he was without question the finest we became uh, I managed to track him down um, something like when would it be something like 30 years ago now so I suppose in the 90s early 90s we uh, became great friends uh, we ended up I persuaded him to, to do some readings, um, in, all in character. He did all the characters, brilliant audio books that we then did for Penguin, with myself uh, producing, with another great friend called Richard Lonsling Green. And, and then I persuaded him to, to write his memoirs. And at the age of 89, he purchased a laptop, learned to use it, 
and wrote a fantastically interesting memoir all about the people he acted with because he acted and was friends with all the greats. A quite extraordinary uh, roll call of all the great actors from Laurence Olivier to Sophia Loren, Marilyn Monroe, Richard Harris. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And he worked with them all during his incredible 40-year career. Brilliant actor. Did a lot of films, including Bond films and some of the great uh, classics. Um, and, and so on. Worked with Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Um, was sharing digs with Richard Burton when uh, he uh, started his uh, relationship on the first occasion with Elizabeth Taylor. All sorts of amazing tales, hard-hitting stuff. And um, and great, and he died sadly, but at a very good age, at 96, I think he was, um, a couple of years or so ago. Hmm. Well, mine would be Jeremy Brett. Uh, so that's that's always been my favourite because of the darkness that he managed to put into a character on <laughs> yeah. the TV. Uh, yes, I felt for me, uh, with all due respect, he was a little bit over the top, a little bit dr- over dramatic. Um, very camp. Yes, <laughs> and, yes, very camp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, interesting, I went to his memorial service. Um, that was uh, in, an interesting event populated by uh, a number of uh, very well-known actors and actresses. So that was fascinating. Uh, he certainly has a, a strong following. Well, I suppose we really should talk about Jaguars, which is, of course, why we are here. And I introduced you at the beginning of the podcast as a Jaguar fan, but you are more than that. You're a motoring fan as well. And take us back to where it all began in childhood for you, and, and perhaps to 1956 at the Silverstone Daily <laughs> Express Trophy meeting, where there was kind of an epiphany for a young lad, wasn't there? Well, you're absolutely right. You've done your research very well. It probably started slightly before that, because a little before that, my father had an an XK120 Roadster, white with red upholstery, uh, as a a spare car. He and his brother, uh, who ran our engineering companies, um, at that time um, sort of acquired, because they were worth very little, a sort of spare, interesting car uh, to go with the the modern, everyday, uh, boring stuff. And... Uh, so I can remember just about, probably aged about four, um, sitting on the back, would you believe, with a tonneau cover, uh, highly uh, illegal today, of course, be frowned upon, health and safety and all that rubbish. Um, but uh, that's where it probably started. Dinky toys, XK120 fixed it, seeing um, them racing, etc. But as you say, I went to Silverstone with my parents, aged five in 1956. It shows us how ancient I am. Um, and my great hero, Sterling Moss, uh, was uh, was racing, and uh, I pointed him out to uh, very boringly and tediously, no doubt, to my parents every time he went past. Uh, we were sitting in the grandstand, and um, that was that was very special. Hawthorne and Fangio and everybody were there, so uh, it was incredible meeting Van Wall's first victory. Um, just talking about uh, doing something on Van Wall at the moment, curiously, and and so on. So. Um, yeah, that was that was a great start, wonderful, and then subsequently he went to Goodwood in the early 60s and started going to Shelsley, Shelsley Walsh Hill Climb uh, as a child, um, and so those sort of um, venues and places had a, a great influence on me, and I used to watch, uh, we had this fantastic racing um, on the television, uh, the Mark IIs, Mark IIs, Mark Wongs and Mark II saloons, Graham Hill, Mike Parks, Salvo, Roy Salvadori, and so on. And it's extraordinary how things have sort of gone full circle because 
many, many years later, if we fast forward a long way, perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here, um, Sterling Moss was to become, become a, a, a close friend. Uh, I knew Roy Salvadori very well, and so on. So um, great fun, very exciting, and so on. But yes, you're right, it all sort of started there. And eventually, when you did get to the point in your life where you were owning your own cars... MGs were a bit of a passion then as well, weren't they? Tell us about those early forays into motoring in those sprites and midgets. Yes, I've never been sort of madly keen on MGs, but I was very much a car enthusiast from from early days, from childhood. And I, my first car was a Sprite, um, Mark two or three, can't remember now, I think Mark two. Um, and then um, I took my test in that. Um, uh, which I thought too crazy at the time. Um, then my next one was uh, was an MG Midget, which um, Ralph Broad, and fun enough, I'm just about to, uh, our publishing uh, Port Press newsletter is about to have a, a feature written by one of our authors about Ralph Broad and Broadspeed. And I went to him uh, and uh, took my, my MG Midget, which he did a brilliant job on modifying to half race, which allowed me to start competing in sprints and hill climbs, I was still at school at this stage, um, and that, but that was terrific. I was competing at Shelsley, Prescott, and Kerbera, etc., um, aged about, I guess I was probably about 18. Um, and then I built um, a Mod Sports uh, full race Sprite, um, which uh, in conjunction with a company called Alden Automotive, um, and I won, I think it was 10 out of 12 events in 1970. Um, and then... They were building, designing a Formula 1300, similar to uh, Formula Ford, but a sports car version of Formula Ford. Um, they were designing a car uh, to compete in that, and the plan was to use my engine and I would drive it. It all slowed down. It didn't look as though it was ever going to happen. Uh, I felt that they were a little bit shaky financially and so on. So I made rather quite um, momentous decision I suppose to pull my little bit of money uh, out of that um, and um, buy a couple of XKs um, I could see that XKs were going to get out of reach financially they were starting to go up this was 1972 they were starting to go up in price uh, I loved them and wanted to buy as many as I possibly could whilst they were still affordable these are cars in need of restoration of course couldn't afford to buy restored cars, but my theory was that if I could get as much as I could afford around me, then I would gradually work through restoring them. Totally crazy, of course, utterly insane. Uh, well, there we are. The, the sports racer uh, went on to win the championship. <laughs> Maybe whether I made the right decision or not, who, who knows, but there we are. I don't uh, believe in regretting things. Well, it probably wouldn't have given you the life with the Jaguar brand that you have had. And, and, and it was a life that started because um, your father's company was an engineering company. And am I right in understanding that Jaguar are actually a customer of his in those days? Absolutely, very much so. Yes, indeed. And I can remember going... Uh, aged, I suppose, probably 18, 19, uh, something like that, to Browns Lane. Um, we were involved in precision engineering, and, uh, and, and my father uh, was quite a car enthusiast um, and had a succession of Jaguars, not just Jaguars. Uh, he never kept cars very long. He was always uh, 
fed up with uh, this rattle or that rattle or something going wrong and so on. So he would change quite frequently, but uh, he had um, a couple of Mark IIs, one of which he was swore had been in the fire because uh, it was a very, very troublesome car. Um, and then he had a Mark X and an uh, early XJ6. So he had uh, several Jaguars. Um, and yes, I remember going to the old showroom reception at Browns Lane. It was wonderful. I can picture it now. Cars arranged around, etc. Sofas, and you waited for whoever you were to see sitting on one of these sofas, and they'd eventually come out and uh, and so on. And one of the buyers to discuss uh, things and so on. And yeah, so that was uh, nice. And I also went to the old Radford Works, the old Daimler Works, which is very, very run down and very grotty, but. Uh, that was fascinating to go to. That, I suppose, was a bit later, actually, when I was researching, because uh, the photographic, Jaguar photographic department for a while was based there. But, uh, yeah, yeah, all sort of formative stuff. You ended up working within the family business and running it, but I get the feeling cars were never far away from trying to weave them into either the business or your career in one way or another in those days. Yes. Well, you're you're right. Uh, I I got involved a bit involved in restoration, etc. And um, I I threw myself into the, the couple of the family companies uh, initially, financial director and then managing director. But my heart wasn't really it. I did the very best possible uh, job I could. But uh, it was a it was a very difficult time for business. We were in and out of recession all the time. Engineering. Um, was was in the doldrums a lot of the time. We, the company I particularly ran, was um, a supplier of, of um, engineering um, tools and things, drills, grinding wheels, nuts and bolts, all that sort of thing. And however good or bad you were in business, you couldn't sell very much to a company that had sort of 20 or 30 machines and only one person working on it because the rest had been made redundant because we're in the middle of another recession. So. And all sorts of boring stuff like our margins were very very small. People were going bust. You had to send the bailiffs in to try and get them to pay. It was not. It was no fun, and there was no satisfaction. And uh, cars were my thing. And then basically, um, a um, a great great friend of mine, uh, and still is, I'm delighted to say, all these years later, um, called Nick Baldwin, who um, was uh, a writer. Uh, he was just starting his writing career. Um, and he was a small part of a magazine called Old Motor, which became Classic and Sports Car. And he um, commissioned me to write an article on Jaguars for an anniversary, and then they commissioned me to write a book on Jaguars. And that's really how the writing side started, so it's all Nick's fault. Have him to blame for it all. (laughs) Very much so. And I suppose at this stage you had basically a barn now full of fairly dilapidated XKs. Did you have a Jaguar on the road at this time, or was that to come later on? In 1973, I bought five XKs and one or two other things like a Chevron B8 and one or two Austin 7s and this, that, and the other. That was 73, and I used to have to rent barns to keep the various cars in, and and every so often I had to move them as the barn was going to be built or developed or whatever. So uh, that was tricky, and I wanted to move into the country because I lived, loved the country, and B, I wanted barns. I needed barns. And so I, in 1978, I found uh, a place near Tenbury Wells in Worcestershire, on the borders of Worcestershire, Herbertshire, and Shropshire, 
and I fell in, in love with that. Well, the first thing I did, typical um, car enthusiast, I looked in at the bottom gate and I said to my then girlfriend, yes, they'll do, looking at the barns, and now let's go and look at the house. Uh, looked at the house, uh, fell in love with that. It's an old, uh, supposedly dates back to 1501. I always say I'm saving up for something newer. Um, and it's a Tudor farmhouse, outbuildings, uh, timber frame barn, this, that, and the other, Dutch barn, and so on. So there's plenty of storage, um, and I was able to move the cars all then to be in one place, but it was all the, the Dutch barn, the main Dutch barn was all open-fronted, so when it snowed, the snow blew in, and the cars got covered, which was sort of tragic, but I just couldn't afford at that stage to do anything more. I couldn't afford to restore the buildings or the cars. My little bit of money went into into the house uh, for, say, 15 years. And, of course, during this time, uh, my various friends all thought, uh, they knew I was insane, that's a given, but they uh, thought I was even more insane, would never, ever restore these cars. You know, they're all in pretty bad condition. My XQ120 fixed head, chassis number three, by chance, very lucky, uh, was in a terrible state. It's 150 pounds I paid for that. Um, and so on. And so they thought it, they would never, ever get restored, and I, they'd just sit around forever, etc. Um, so I then really concentrated, I suppose, um, on writing. Uh, I sold off um, the business interests and all kept the property in Birmingham in the jewelry quarter, and, um, and concentrated working away in, up the back stairs in one small room, at the, the old farmhouse, um, writing. Um, I was approached by Haynes, um, and I wrote several books for them, including pilots for various series. And these were all Jaguar books at this stage. Um, and uh, it just sort of went on from there, really. And you had the dream house, what would to many be a dream house. You hadn't quite got the barns finished as you described there, but then a dream car was to come into your possession. And anyone who visited the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace last year and saw the display of film and TV cars there would have seen very famous E-Type, registration 848CRY, of course, from the Italian job. Tell us how that came into the Porter family. A very nice guy. Um, had put together a little collection of four Jaguars, and he had had a religious experience and uh, in a church in Spain and was instructed to go out and do good works, uh, which he subsequently did all over the world for many years. And he wanted to sell these cars, uh, three of which were historic, and they, he wanted whoever bought them to keep them in the UK and keep them together for a number of years. And he approached um, my very good friend, Paul Skilleter. Uh, so I believe he's a Jaguar writer or something. I don't know. I don't know the name vaguely. Um, and um, Paul uh, mentioned it to me because he already had a, a, an E-type fixed head, um, a nice car on the road, um, and, uh, and so on. Uh, I'd had loads of fun, incidentally, quick di digression. Um, Paul lent me his Alley 120 uh, for a season, and I hill-climbed that, which was terrific fun. Uh, won an event at Castle Howard and things, hill-climb, and so on. And used to use it on the road, which was very exciting. It was a, a great fun at trying to annoy Aston Martins. So 
Paul put me in touch with this gentleman. Uh, my father uh, realised he was really not supportive of me buying these funny old cars. He thought I was completely mad as well um, and uh, just didn't really get it that they were going to get out of reach. And I, I stress I'd never bought any of these cars or anything for uh, investment purposes. Uh, I always say I wish they were worthless because then I'd be able to afford a D-type. <laughs> but uh, I knew they were going to go. They were going up in value and they were going to go out of reach, which is why I had to rush around and try and buy everything. And anyway, um, I managed to acquire these four cars, one of which was on the road, uh, one that was not in a historic car and wasn't sort of part of the, the, the four that was or three that, that to be kept. And so I managed to sell that, in fact, the very first night that I, I had it uh, to a friend in the local pub and, um, and, and had the other three. Now, the other three were um, E-Type Fixed Head uh, number one, um, E-type fixed head. Well, it turned out to be it's known by its registration nine six double O HP. I was many years later asked by the world's second largest publisher, Orion, uh, to write a book on the car, which they insisted on being titled and uh, its obnoxious title, "The Most Famous Car in the World." That did me a lot of harm, particularly in the, in the club world. A lot of people thought I was uh, trying to be self-promoting mm-hmm. uh, and so on, but it was not my decision, and um, I agree it's an utterly obnoxious title. Um, anyway, I discovered that that car was actually the oldest E-Type now. It was a prototype. Um, it was the Geneva launch car, of course, and it was the press car and all sorts of things. So um, that's really the star of my little collection, 960HP. Mm-hmm. But there's also... A Roadster, uh, which was number 12, 12th one made, but I knew nothing about it at all. And uh, a few weeks or months, probably months after I'd acquired it, um, Andrew White, the great Andrew White, had sent me uh, some information from the original chassis records indicating that it was the demonstrator for um, Sturgis's, all three Sturgis, Sturgis's of Leicester, mm-hmm. uh, Jaguar dealership still to this day and a lovely wonderful company um great friends um and family owned longest family owned jaguar dealership certainly in the uk if not the world Mm. and supplier of many a jaguar enthusiast club raffle car through the years as well absolutely absolutely really nice people and a a super company to deal with um perhaps if if you're still awake and still alive by the end of this interview i'll i'll uh, tell you how things come full circle and i've uh, acquired something from them a few years ago but anyway back to the type so um i spoke to i phoned up and spoke to robin sturgis uh who very sadly died a year about a year ago i suppose now um as a complete gentleman uh, we would have become good friends, which was very nice indeed. And he had raced the car uh, extensively. I was able to discover it was actually the most active uh, E-type racer in 1961. And uh, raced it very successfully against people like Jack Lambert, etc. And then he said to me, did you realize the car was in the film The Italian Job? And I said, no. No, I had no idea at all. He said, well, I was watching it last weekend and I thought I recognized the registration. I should explain here that when he raced it, it was, had the registration 2BBC, which the Sturgis still own today. And, and then when he sold it at the end of 1961, he changed it to 848CRY, local Leicestershire registration, I think. 
and, and so on. So that was how I found out that the car was in the film. I had no idea at all. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Next week, we'll conclude our conversation with Philip Porter by looking at some of the famous publications from Porter Press and in particular hear about how he put together the definitive history of the Jaguar E-Type ahead of its 60th anniversary year. Plus, he'll let us in on exactly what it was he bought from Sturgis in Leicester. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic free magazine that you will get as a member of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.